Today we're going to be in the scriptures and particularly in the book of Acts. So if you have a copy of the scriptures or want to launch your device, go ahead and find the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2, the first Christian sermon preached to the crowds. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, that's fine. We're going to put them up on the screen as well, which is how most people follow along. When I was in high school, I developed this fascination about not only what people believed, but why they believe it. And maybe that's why I cracked a wry smile this last week when I was surfing the internet and I came across this meme that had the picture of Abraham Lincoln on it, along with this quote. People will believe anything they read on the internet. <laughs> I love that because obviously Abraham Lincoln could not have said something like that, even though it's in quotes and has his name printed below it. But it's also interesting because it seems like people will believe anything they read on the internet. Things go viral before there's any chance of verification. I remember my grandfather telling me back before the internet was invented, he said, that piece of paper, speaking of newspapers, that piece of paper will hold still and let you write anything you want on it. Lies, truth, it doesn't matter to the paper. <laughs> my grandfather, over the course of growing up, helped instill in me a healthy skepticism of the things that you see, the things that you read. You can't believe anything. And so let me ask you this question. What do you believe about the most important questions in life and why you believe these things? Have you stopped to think about that? Many people have kind of a vague idea of the things that they believe. Sometimes it surfaces to the point of conviction. But why do you believe these things? One of the questions I like to ask people in a conversation is this. Do you believe that death is the end or just the beginning? I found in asking this to people here in Texas, in Peru where we used to live, in Canada as well, that a lot of people have a belief about the afterlife, that, that things go on, that this can't be the end. Certainly not everyone that says that, but, but the vast majority. But then when I ask them the question, well, why do you believe that? They're a little bit less certain. Sometimes it's, that's just what they want to believe. Or maybe that's what they've been taught growing up. If someone were to ask you the question, maybe even kind of cornering you, and to say, why are you a Christian? if you are a follower of Jesus, how would you respond to that question? What would you say? That question is a very good question. It can't just be because that's what you want to believe. And it can't just simply be that that's what you've been told to believe. And as we think about not only what you believe today, but what people in the first century believe, I have this nagging question. Why in the world would anyone in the first century believe that the crucified Jesus was the true king of the world, especially when it might cost them everything to say so? When you're being led to be crucified, or you're led out to be devoured by animals, what makes you hold steadfast to what you say you believe? My friends, in the first century, that question, that answer to that question was crystal clear. It was simply because there was an empty tomb. Jesus had been executed, there was an empty tomb, and there were eyewitnesses. And we could put it like this. The resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of Christianity. If Jesus did not come back from the dead like he said he would, there is no Christianity. 
We most likely never would have even heard of Jesus. He might have been a little blip on the screen. But certainly there wouldn't be a worldwide movement of people dedicated to his teaching. So we're going to call our study today, We Were Eyewitnesses. And what I want us to do is to look at the very first message that was proclaimed some 50 days after Jesus had died and come back again. This is at the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And the person speaking is Jesus' disciple Peter, the one you remember who, when he was pointed out as being a follower of Jesus the night that Christ was arrested, completely denied it. And yet 50 days later, he's back in the very heart of the place that crucified Jesus and spoke these words. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here he quotes Psalm 16, written by David, the king of Israel, some 700, or actually almost 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also dwell in, will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here he quotes David in this psalm, speaking of how God will not abandon him to the grave, to Hades, but that he will live and he will experience pleasure in the presence of God. And this is what Peter said. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke the writer of this book of Acts adds these words in verse 41. So those who received his word, that is Peter's word about Jesus, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
What's remarkable about Peter standing up in Jerusalem is that he is standing up in the very place that crucified Jesus. There was the Feast of Pentecost going on. There were pilgrims all over the place, and everyone was talking about the recent events, about the crucified Jesus. So many people had staked their hopes that he would be the chosen one who would redeem Israel, who would bring the coming of the kingdom to reality. Everyone's talking about this. And there's rumors that he's no longer dead. Everyone knew about this empty tomb. And so Peter stands up in the very place where they crucified Jesus, where they might crucify Peter too, and says, you killed Jesus. But God raised them up, and we are witnesses. In fact, one chapter later, in another context, in Jerusalem, Peter would speak to the crowds again and say these words, Men of Israel, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And so it should be noted, as William Lane Craig once said, one of the most amazing facts about the early Christians' belief in Jesus' resurrection was that it originated in the very city where Jesus was crucified. The Christian faith did not come to exist in some distant city, far from eyewitnesses who knew of Jesus' death and burial. No, it came into being in the very city where Jesus had been publicly crucified under the very eyes of its enemies. And so what would cause Peter to stand up and say, we are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, if it was not for the fact that they saw Jesus? And so I want to ask the question, who were these early eyewitnesses testifying about the resurrection of Jesus? Who were they and what happened to them to change their minds? So I'm going to highlight four of them for you today. The first one is this. The resurrection changed Peter, the disciple who denied Jesus. Now you may know about who Peter is. He's one of the 12 disciples. He was one of Jesus' most closest friends. He pledged his loyalty to Jesus and promised to die for him if necessary. But he fled for his life when Jesus was arrested, and he denied ever knowing Jesus. Can you imagine this man who spent three years with Jesus, living, breathing in his teaching, with a growing confidence that he is the chosen one, and you're so convinced that you would pledge to Jesus that you would die for him, even if everyone else abandoned him. And all of a sudden, when Jesus is arrested, and it's been pointed out that you are one of his followers, he begins to deny it vehemently, calling down curses upon himself. Oh, how he changed so fast. You see, he didn't want to end up potentially crucified like Jesus did. That's what Romans did to revolutionaries. People talking about new reigns and new rulers and new kings. And so he denied Jesus. But what happened that changed Peter from a frightened denier into a fearless proclaimer of Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul, in writing one of the first letters that we have from the early Christian movement, said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, Christ died for our sins and was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is an Aramaic word for rock, which is a nickname that Jesus gave to Peter. In Greek, it's Petros. But he appeared. And if you've read the Gospel of John, you know there are very interesting things that happened after Jesus was crucified. The disciples were... Uh, 
disappointed, perplexed, demoralized, you might say, and they decided to go fishing. And so they went out fishing, which is what they knew to do. And as they were about 100 yards offshore, a man stood. And John tells us, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. John, the apostle, disciple of Jesus, said, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he threw himself into the sea. <laughs> he couldn't wait for them to, to row the fishing boat to shore. He jumped in about 100 yards out and swam so he could be with Jesus. And when they came ashore, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you, Lord? They knew it was the Lord. These men who had witnessed Jesus being beaten, who had witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, who were in hiding and fled for their lives, and now just went out, just fished all night, now are sitting with the resurrected Jesus. So when Peter stands up in Jerusalem and says, This Jesus God raised up, and of, all the, uh, and of that we are all witnesses. There is a certain willingness to stand for the truth now. I mean, what would cause you to go back to the very place where they crucified Jesus, if you're one of his followers, to go back there, tell people that they crucified him, but you had now seen him, unless you indeed had seen him. Peter would write a letter, a New Testament document, and in it he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. Peter knew what a myth was. He knew what a, a fable was. And he says, we're not talking about that. Rather, we are eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so the resurrection changed Peter. But here's a second eyewitness. The resurrection changed James, the brother who didn't believe in Jesus. Did you know this? James was the unbelieving of Jesus, and he did not follow Jesus during his public ministry. In fact, he, along with his family, thought that Jesus was a, bit, a little bit crazy. I mean, think about it. What would, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was the Messiah, <laughs> the chosen one, God in the flesh? I mean, that's a pretty high bar, right? We're told in the Gospel of Mark that when his family heard Jesus teaching, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's crazy. Jesus, stop. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing us. We're told in the Gospel of John, not even his brothers believed in him. So James was the unbelieving brother of Jesus. But what's interesting is he became the leader of the persecuted church, not thousands of miles away in Rome, not even up in Antioch or down in Egypt, but in Jerusalem, the hotbed of persecution of the earliest followers of Jesus. So what happened that changed James from the unbelieving brother of Jesus into a fearless proclaimer of Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in that same document of 1 Corinthians, Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas. Then he appeared to James. So the resurrection of Jesus changed Peter, it changed James, but it also changed Thomas. See, the resurrection changed Thomas, the skeptical, 
disciple of Jesus who refused to believe in his resurrection without proof. You see, one of the times when Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was crucified, he appeared to them and Thomas wasn't there. I don't know, maybe he went out to go get food, maybe he just went out for a walk to clear his head. But whatever happened, he was not there. So when he came back, the disciples were saying, we saw Jesus. And he's thinking they're playing a joke on him or something. And this is what Thomas said to him, said to them. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Here are these, these men and women that he had spent three years following Jesus with. They're the best of friends. They know each other inside and out. And now they're saying they saw Jesus, and he's like, that's not good enough for him. His closest, most trusted friends. He says, I will never believe unless I see it with my own eyes and can stick my hand into his wounds. We're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What happened that changed Thomas from a skeptical denier of the resurrection into a fearless proclaimer of the resurrected Jesus? It was the resurrection of Jesus. This man refused to believe in Jesus unless he could touch his wounds. He saw the risen Jesus, touched his wounds, and called him my Lord and my God. And he spread the gospel of Jesus as far as India. So the resurrection of Jesus changed Peter because he was an eyewitness, changed James because he was an eyewitness, and changed Thomas because he was an eyewitness. And my favorite, perhaps, is the resurrection changed Paul, the zealous adversary of Jesus. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he was a member of the Pharisees. That was the party that conspired to put Jesus to death. He violently persecuted the church of Jesus, trying to destroy its movement. He actually presided over the first martyr, Stephen, who was killed for proclaiming the good news about Jesus. He had such influence and position among the Pharisees that they allowed him to be the one who presided over the execution of Stephen. We're told in the in book of Acts chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Paul presided over the first execution of a Christian. So many Christians freaked out over what was going on that they fled Jerusalem. The people who stayed were the apostles, and they started that movement again from scratch. We're told in verse chapter 8, verse 3, that Saul was ravaging. Saul is his, um, his Hebrew name. Paul is his kind of Gentile name. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Can you, can you imagine how terrifying this would be? To have one of the most religious, influential people in your city coming to your neighborhood, knocking on doors, asking if people are followers of Jesus. What would you say? 
chapter 9 and verse Acts, Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Not only was he ravaging the church in Jerusalem, he's going up to Damascus to find if anyone there. He is doing his very best to stamp out this early movement of followers of Jesus. And on his way to Damascus, he met the resurrected Christ, who surrounded him in blinding light. So he was, he was physically blinded for several days after that. And in that moment, Christ had mercy upon Peter. I'm sorry, upon Paul. Forgave him of his sins and appointed him to be his ambassador to the Roman Empire. In fact, when Paul is talking about his testimony in the book of Galatians, he said the Christians were freaking out because he used to persecute, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. This man who had been killing Christians is now standing up preaching about Jesus, telling people that he's come back from the dead, calling people to trust in him. So, what happened? that changed Paul from a murderous persecutor into a fearless proclaimer of Jesus? Well, he answers that question himself in 1 Corinthians again. Christ died for our sins and was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to James. Last of all, he appeared to me. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, after listing a number of people that Christ appeared to, including groups of people, says, last of all, he appeared to me. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. That is a messenger of Jesus because I tried to stamp out the movement of Jesus. Paul wasn't just preaching to poor, uneducated people. He would preach to the most influential people in power, for example, in Acts chapter 26, you can read about the time that he appeared before King Agrippa. And again, these kings had the power to put people to death who would not give their ultimate loyalty to Rome. So Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, Paul standing before King Agrippa said, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This God who spoke this world into existence, this God who has all power and knowledge why would it be incredible to any of you to think that God could raise the dead? He says, I stand here today testifying to both small and great, saying that nothing but what Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the nations. I am speaking true and rational words. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. What an aggressive statement, isn't it? You know, King Agrippa, that what I'm saying is true. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Everyone was talking about Jesus. It had made its way all the way up to people in power like kings and emperors. And so Paul, this zealous enemy of Jesus, who was a member of the Pharisees, who persecuted the church, was suddenly converted by a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. He became an ambassador 
of Jesus to kings and paupers. He was repeatedly beaten by mobs and survived numerous plots on his life. He was presumed executed during the reign of Nero the emperor. We're not sure on that last one there. He was in prison waiting his trial for Nero, that psychopath emperor of Rome. And the historical record goes cold. It's presumed that he died during his reign. Why would anyone hold to the truth that Christ had risen from the dead unless they had seen it themselves? James Sire in his book, Why Should Anyone Believe Anything at All? Which is a great question, isn't it? (laughs) He says this, For a long time it has been my fascination with Jesus, his character, the, the brilliance and wisdom of his teaching, the depth of his compassion, the endlessness of his grace and forgiving sin that has kept me in the faith. To whom shall we go? Peter once asked. You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Still, as is clear from the Gospels, it took the resurrection to convince Peter and the other disciples that Jesus was Lord of Lords and King of Kings, worthy of being followed without reservation. It took the resurrection of Jesus to convince Peter and the disciples, including Thomas the skeptic. It took the resurrection of Jesus to convince James, the unbelieving brother of Jesus. It took the resurrection of Jesus to convince Paul, the zealous enemy of Jesus, that everything had changed. So how about you? What would it take to convince you that Jesus is worthy of being followed without reservation? There are different ways that we know things. We have mathematical certainty. We have scientific experiments that we can conduct on things here now in the present. We can measure and come to conclusions. But what about things that happened in the past? We rely on testimony of the past. How do you know that George Washington was the first president of the United States? You weren't there. You rely on the testimony that has come down to us. And likewise, we rely on the testimony of those who saw Jesus come back from the dead and sealed their testimony with their own blood. Someone says, hey, if believing in the resurrection helps you have a better day, then good for you. My friends, this isn't on the order of, do you like chocolate ice cream or vanilla better? We're not asking about preferences or or things that might pump you up to help you get through the day. We're asking about what has happened historically. And if Jesus is still in his tomb, that has radical implications. And if Jesus has come back from the dead, that has radical implications as well. You see, my friends, there are three undeniable facts of history. There was an execution. There was an empty tomb. There were eyewitnesses. Scholars, both ancient and modern, agree on these things. Take, for example, Josephus. He was a Jewish man working for the Roman Empire as a historian, so he had to get his details correct. And in his Antiquities, he writes these words. At this time, there was a man called Jesus, and Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. Bart Ehrman, who is no friend of Christianity, teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, said one of the most 
certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And Gerd Luderman, professor of history and literature of early Christianity at a university in Germany, said these words, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which he appeared to them as the risen Christ. He says the historical record is clear. The disciples had these experiences. Now, Professor Luderman is not himself a follower of Jesus. Well, why not? Well, he believes these experiences were hallucinations. He believes that people thought they had seen Jesus. He, he thought that people were so overcome with grief and so wanted it not to be the case that Jesus had actually been executed, that they had these hallucinations, that, they, that he actually appeared to them. There's only one problem with that, as Paul himself would write. Christ died for his sins and was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to James, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive. He also mentions in that text there that he appeared to James and to himself. But here Paul says, look, he appeared to groups of people. If you know anything about hallucinations, you know hallucinations are highly individualistic. You might have a room full of people having hallucinations, but they're not having the same hallucination. But there are groups of people, including a group of 500 brothers and sisters that Jesus appeared to at one time. And Paul says most of them are still alive. So why would you say that that's the case? Unless it were actually the case. I mean, you don't make up a story like that and say there's, there's over 500 people that saw Jesus at one time. Such that they could go and be verified unless that actually happened. So here's the thing, my friends. As Yaroslav Pelikan said from Yale University, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, nothing else matters. It's the bold claim of Christianity that if Christ has risen from the dead, that is the most central and significant fact of history. And it has massive implications for you and me. But it's also the claim of Christianity that if Jesus did not come back from the dead, literally nothing matters. Nothing. Not your family, not your work. For all you're scurrying around, you're going to die. So you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Because you're going to die... And after a generation or two, most people won't remember you. And certainly, this universe is going to die of heat exhaustion at some point. And there will be nothing for anyone to think about. Because there will be no one to think about anything. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, nothing else matters. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, put it like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on everything hangs, I'm sorry, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So those early disciples of Jesus went about saying things like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is, you will experience salvation as a gift from God. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be welcomed into his kingdom. You'll be adopted as one of God's children. Have access to the, the creator of all things with the right to call him your heavenly father. 
If you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and if you believe that he rose again from the dead. And so the disciples went about teaching people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but that the resurrection of the dead is now possible. <laughs> and the way Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. You see, this is where it moves from just being an interesting historical event in the past to having radical implications for us. Do you believe that death is the end or just the beginning? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can believe it's the beginning. That everything in this life is kind of like the preface to eternal life that goes on and on forever. During our time of communion today, we're going to sing this song, I Will Rise, written by Chris Tomlin. It has these words, Jesus has overcome, and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He has risen from the dead. All historically accurate. And then it gets personal. And I will rise when he calls my name. No more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my God. Fall on my knees and rise. I will rise. My friends, the only way you can sing that is if Christ has come back from the dead. The only way you can sing that with certainty, knowing that because God raised Jesus by his power, he will raise you by his own power. The only way you can know that by, certain, by certainty is if Jesus has come back from the dead. But it gets even better than that. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, put it like this. The central Christian affirmation is that what, God, what the Creator has done in Jesus Christ, and supremely in his resurrection, is what he intends to do for the whole world. The early Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole world what he had done for Jesus at Easter. This world is not doomed to die a heat death given enough time. Jesus will come back. And when he comes back, he will make everything gloriously new, such that creation itself undergoes a resurrection. The way Jesus put it in the Gospel of Matthew is this. I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, that's a phrase in the Greek. It basically takes two words. Genesis again. When everything's recreated and everything's made new, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Jesus goes on and teaches some other things from there. But don't miss the point that Jesus guarantees the resurrection and renewal to come. So my friends, may the resurrection of Jesus define your life, anchor your soul, and strengthen your hope in the renewal of all things to come. Amen and amen.